So good evening, everybody. Venerable Chujin is recovering from a eye surgery, and she's doing quite well, and so you're giving her lots of space and time to recover, so I've taken on the uh, opportunity to do some sharing of the Dharma tonight. So let's begin by setting a motivation. There are many things in this world that we have learned and have wanted to learn about and understand deeply in order to become successful and accomplished. And in our lives, we have strived for excellence in these worldly matters with great diligence, focus, and joy. However, there is nothing more important for us to do as Dharma practitioners than to balance our outer worldly successes by deepening our understanding of our own minds, in order to fully actualize a wisdom mind that will serve us far beyond the worldly success of just this life, and to use the same diligence and determination and joy to bring about this wisdom mind, which will actually eliminate all the clinging, all the struggles for the joy and pleasures of just this life, and to be able to bring us some peace of mind as we counter all the difficulties and all the struggles in attaining those pleasures of this life. So as we create the causes and conditions for that wisdom mind to arise by listening and reflecting on these teachings on the Gamchen Lamrim, it is crucial that we generate a virtuous motivation which is crucial in determining the long-term value of our efforts and practice. So let's keep bodhicitta as our primary motivation in order to actualize the teachings on the nature of reality in our minds so that once free from the clinging to the happiness of this life and its successes, we may attain awakening just not for our own lasting state of peace, but for the benefit and well-being of all living beings without exception, who by their kindness are crucial causes for our attainments of that state of Buddhahood. Let's really bring together tonight our diligence, our curiosity, our willingness to share the Dharma on a very profound and deeply complex topic of the far-reaching practice of wisdom, the wisdom realizing emptiness. So may we do that for not only our own liberation and awakening, but for the liberation and awakening of all living beings without exception. So when the Venerable Tarpa put out the request for somebody to do this review and nobody came forward, I, I knew that it was, my time was up, but I had some <laughs> hesitancy. And she said, well, we've done three reviews on, you know, concentration. Maybe we should just start working our, well, ourselves into the wisdom part of the Gamchen. And I said, okay. So tonight we're going to start on that wonderful journey. And... Um, as I was coming into the, the room tonight, Venable said, what are you gonna what are you gonna review on? And I said, Well, we're we're starting the the insight, cultivating insight on um, insight into emptiness. And uh, she said, make sure that you really that it's really important that people realize how ignorance is the root of samsara and that the wisdom realize emptiness is the freedom from that. And so I said, Well, <laughs> we'll start unpacking at least partially that because where she starts out on this uh, part of the Gam Chen, it really does unpack identifying all the, the, the manifest ignorance in our minds and how it manifests, how it causes the root of samsara. So that's kind of where we're going to jump off tonight. 
and how to think about what it is we're actually trying to understand when we say we want to understand, you know, to cultivate insight so we can understand and have a direct realization of emptiness, but to look at what gets in the way of us realizing it, the self-grasping ignorance, and to see how much self-grasping ignorance permeates every moment of our existence from the day that we're born to the day that we die through lifetimes. And how through really looking at these beautiful teachings, how we can begin to challenge this self-grasping ignorance and really to challenge it and find ways how to finally remove and lessen its grasp on our mind until we can really understand emptiness directly. And that it takes a lot of effort, a lot of, a, it's a very steady, slow, gradual pra- practice and process, but its reward is freedom from this perpetual cycle of birth, aging, and sickness and death under the control of afflictions and karma, life after life. So as profound and as complicated and as uh, you know, subtle as some of these teachings do get to be at, you know, we really know that the ultimate goal is freedom from all of samsara's sufferings and dukkha, and the wisdom to be able to benefit sentient beings, to to have the omniscient mind of a Buddha. So it's so much worth the efforts. So as I like to do, or I try to do when any ever I'm really thinking about emptiness or trying to put my little foot in the water there and, and, and study on it, I always like to get some inspiring words from some of our teachers on how they want us to think about even the, the time that we spend thinking about it, even that little bit of understanding, that little tinge of a light going on in our minds, how powerful that is. So I wanted to uh, share something by Kenster Jump at Take Chuck in his beautiful book, Insight into Emptiness which Venable edited. This is just a treasure. And how crucial it is to study the teachings on emptiness at whatever level for however long it takes. So here's what he says. There is a a quote. It is uh, in Ocean of Reasoning. Uh, Lama Sakapa quotes a passage from Nagarjuna's Compendium of Sutras. Through aspiration towards the profound Dharma, all merits are accumulated because it accomplishes all mundane and supermundane benefits until one attains enlightenment. So Kensar Jampa Tektok says, well, what is the profound dharma? It is the ultimate nature, the selflessness of persons and phenomena, the emptiness of inherent existence, and is profound because it is the correct view. It is a profound object to realize. And through aspiration towards the profound dharma, all merits are accumulated, means that if we have admiration and faith and emptiness, as well as the aspiration to realize it, we will try to understand it. So creating the cause is to have some interest, some curiosity, some faith, some admiration, because this is the most profound of all the Buddha's teachings. By exerting effort to understand it, we will gather immeasurable merit, since even a cursory idea of emptiness creates so much merit There is no need to mention the merit created when we actually understand it. Explaining the value of familiarizing ourselves with emptiness, a sutra says that some bodhisattvas may diligently practice just the first five, six perfections, generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, and meditative stability for hundreds and thousands of eons. But the merit of even an ordinary practitioner who listens to the topic of emptiness, reflects and meditates on its meaning, 
writes it out or explains it to others, even with some hesitation or indecision, is far greater than that. So that's kind of the attitude I decided to have coming here to doing this tonight. And then he really does state quite clearly, as Venerable said to me tonight, is to really express the power and the importance of the wisdom realizing emptiness to really eliminate the ignorance, the cause of all of our suffering and our rebirths in samsara. The wisdom realizing emptiness is so effective in purifying karma and eradicating afflictions because it apprehends phenomena completely opposite to the way ignorance apprehends phenomena. Thus it meets ignorance head-on and can afflict harm on ignorance directly, not indirectly as other virtues such as love and compassion do. For example, if we have to go to court, many people may, may advise us what to say and do when we get there. But what is really needed is someone who stands up in court and proves to the judge and jury that what our adversary says is wrong. Similarly, the virtuous qualities such as compassion, fortitude, and concentration assist us on the path to awakening. But only the wisdom realizing the emptiness of inherent existence can prove without a doubt that the root of cyclic existence Ignorance grasping at inherent existence apprehends phenomena in a mistaken way. That's kind of where we're going to start off tonight, is really look into these misapprehensions about how things exist. So Venerable has led us through the Gamchen. We've gotten a long way. Um, We've gone through the initial scope. We've gone through all of the... The topics in that, from precious human life, karma, death, and impermanence. We've gone through the middle scope developing the determination to be free of cyclic existence. We've had very extensive teachings in the Gamchen about generating bodhicitta, the bodhisattva path of the previous five far-reaching practices. So it's really our minds are getting ready to look at this most profound practice of wisdom. So Cancer Jampa Take Chalk, an insight into emptiness, really describes our situation and our potential. Because once again, we've got to really understand what kind of pickle we're really in here, how how our suffering minds, that the, the cause of it is the self-grasping ignorance. We've got to kind of wrap our minds around these misapprehensions that we have about how things exist and how from that we create all sorts of, of suffering for ourselves. So he says, you know, we really have to understand that being born again in the six realms is, is something that we don't have a choice about. It's not something that we can say, well, I really want to be reborn in this beautiful Buddhist family that has all the causes and conditions, they're loving, they're kind, they're compassionate, I'm going to be a smart human being, I'm going to have a nice body, I'm going to have lots of friends, I'm going to have a a wonderful Dharma teacher at early on. We we don't have that kind, we have no choice in determining where we're going to go. And it's not like, you know, it doesn't work like that we are born without any choice in any of the various realms of rebirth due to our karma. So, and the only thing that we got going is that due to our destructive karma at the time of death, we're propelled into some sort of unfortunate rebirth. Or if we have the fortune to die with a mind that's maybe filled with generosity and compassion and love, it may propel us to a virtuous rebirth, a a fortunate one where we have a human rebirth, we have a good family, we meet the Dharma early on. But we're still not free because we're still propelled without any choice due to our afflictions and polluted karma, life after life. So even in the, the best circumstances of a samsaric existence, we're still not free. If we had a choice, he said, most of us would probably choose to be born as a human 
And if we're really wise, we would seek liberation from this merry-go-round altogether. But to be successful at that motivation for freedom from samsara, we have to address the root cause of cycling and rebirth again and again by eliminating the root of it all, the self-grasping ignorance or the ignorance grasping at true existence. It's not an easy task. There's a long, gradual process for doing it that starts with hearing, thinking, and meditating on the teachings on emptiness. Okay, so but even just by what we're doing here tonight is really helping us to begin the process of counteracting counteracting the self-grasping ignorance through first getting some understanding. You know, even if we just get some basic understanding that when I wake up in the morning, I'm not seeing things clearly. I'm not seeing things correctly. Or when an affliction arises, we know I'm grasping at something. When I get pissed off, I'm grasping at something. I'm either grasping at myself, I'm grasping at an object out there. And due to that, the afflictions arise and then I respond to just understand how we operate under the control of the self-grasping ignorance is a huge piece. And that's really where, you know, we are, at least I am right now, and the path is just watching myself and seeing how compelled and how propelled I am by ignorance. And that Kensu Jampa Tektra says that being able to eventually realize emptiness directly is that our happiness and our well-being depend on this. So where we are, wherever we are, hearing, thinking, and meditating on the teachings of emptiness, that's where we start. We're creating the causes for not only our short-term happiness, but for our long-term liberation and awakening. So we really have to understand that this is a crucial piece. Wherever we are on the path, whatever our understanding of emptiness, to really rejoice and to, and to, to garner and to build that little by little. So the first part of the, the section on insight and emptiness. Venerable started at the end of February. We've been doing this for over three months. And she started this section by first going over a lot of terms and concepts. She took each of the paragraphs in this part of the text and then she unpacked them. And it was all about really wrapping our minds about understanding what is true existence? What is the uh, grasping at the personal identity? What's the mere I? What are the different schools version of that? So right off the bat, she says, true existence, what is that? It's an object that appears to exist from its own side, it's independent, it's got its own essence, it's got its own nature, it's self-enclosed, it's not depending on anything, it has some sort of essence, some sort of inherent nature that makes it exactly what it is. Things don't exist this way. We have to keep remembering that things don't exist this way, but that's what appears to not only our senses, but our mental consciousness that actively grasps and believes that what we see, this true existence, is how things actually appear. So right off the bat, we're seeing things mistakenly. So we'll go back a little bit. The conceived object, this conceptual thought, this object that the mind conceives is said to be the truly existent self that believes that things exist from their own side, that exist from their own nature, self-enclosed. However, the basis of this misunderstanding are persons and phenomena, things that do exist. The person, the mere I, okay, so that's the person that we we impute true existence on. And then there's everything else that's included in phenomena our aggregates, the clock, the trees, the light, everything. 
on the basis of that mere eye and these merely designated phenomena referring to the aggregates, body, form, feeling, compositional factors, our ignorant mind looks at these things and those things appear to us as truly existent. They exist from their own side without question. And then that mind of ignorance assents to that appearance, hooks onto it, grasps to it, clings to it, invests in it, attributes to it qualities of happiness, unhappiness that they don't have. And I say, yes, they are truly existent. Now, when we think about this on a daily basis, this is happening in our minds so quickly. This isn't something that we consciously say, I'm looking at Renato right now and I see him as truly existent, that he's existing from his own side. And depending whether I like him or not today, I'm either going to push him away or I'm going to grasp on him, onto him as a friend. Our mind is working so fast that as soon as it sees an object, it appears as truly existent. We experience it, we respond to it. Yes, it exists exactly as I see it. The conceived object of the grasping is that truly existent person and that truly existent phenomena that we think is actually there. And what believes them to be there and clutches and clings or pushes away is the self-grasping of persons and the self-grasping of phenomena. So there's these, all these different levels of how we perceive things truly existent, existing from their own side, and depending on whether we're attracted to it or averse to it, we either push it away or we cling to it. And that's where the self-grasping ignorance takes over. So the self-grasping, self-grasping of persons and the self-grasping of phenomena have two bases. We have to keep remembering it. It's just, you know, there's a conventional object there. There is a person there. There is a clock there. There is a wall there. There is a body and mind there. The two objects that our mind misapprehend in dependence on those two bases are the two kinds of grasping, grasping of persons, grasping of phenomena, and they are mistaken. They are totally wrong objects. So we just this is where we're kind of figuring out, okay, what is it that we're looking at when we open our eyes in the morning? What are we really seeing? And due to the ignorance, we see things like this, and we believe it. Now, Venerable Wanda, she said in the, the talk, she said it's really important because this is a place of some real confusion for many of us. She says when we talk about the self-grasping ignorance or the selflessness or self of person or phenomena, the word self can have two very, very different meanings. And this can be really confusing at the get-go. Sometimes self is synonymous with person. I talk to myself every once in a while. <laughs> the near eye talks to herself every once in a while. So that's referring to Semke, the mere eye, the conventionally existent self. But when we say the selflessness of person or phenomena or the self of person or self of phenomena, that self in those terms means inherent existence or true existence. She says, don't confuse thinking that self-grasping just means we grasp at ourselves because there is a self-grasping of persons and there's a self-grasping of phenomena. And there's also a selflessness of persons and a selflessness of phenomena. And selflessness is the absence of true existence or the absence of that self which is truly existent in those circumstances. So she says we have to understand so we don't get confused because here's one word self that has two opposite meanings. It talks about one thing that does exist, which is the self, 
merely labeled in dependence upon body and mind. And then there's the one that doesn't exist, which is the self of person and the self of phenomena, which is truly existing. So depending on what context we use the self, it has totally opposite meanings. So then she uses this analogy, and she uses a few analogies in this teaching. And I used to think this one was really hokey. But she says, I really appreciate this analogy, so we're going to run this by you and see what you think, and to, to look at it as an analogy for how we see things as being truly existent. Okay, so this is the famous one. But it's like when we're born with sunglasses on. Okay, now we're going to, the first thing I say is there's no such thing. There's nobody who's born with sunglasses on. So there's this skepticism, there's this sarcasm that says, I can't even go there because it doesn't exist. We're going to use that, that little symbol to really get down to something very, very profound. So let's use our imagination. Let's believe that, yes, the moment that we come out of our mother's rooms, we've got a pair of shades on. They could be blue, they could be yellow, they could be dark brown. But everything that we see through those sunglasses is dark. But what is really existing is not dark at all. We just don't know that. The snow looks green, the sky looks yellow, the trees look blue, depending on the shade that we've got in our sunglasses. Even though, actually, the snow is white, the sky is blue, and the trees are green, but as long as we're wearing those sunglasses, they're going to be yellow, brown, gray, purple. We see something Snow is white, trees are ground. That's it. But when we see something that is the wrong color, brown snow, blue trees, yellow sky, we never question it because we've been born with those sunglasses and that's all that we know. The basis, the tree, is green. The snow is white. The sky is blue. But the conceived object Whatever color, blue, brown, whatever color we're seeing, is seeing it incorrectly. But because we don't know that there's any actual reality out there besides what we know, we think this is it. Those are the colors. That's my world. That's what's real. There's no doubt about it. Because we wear these sunglasses. So true existence is like being born with sunglasses. We look at each other and we just are convinced, I'm convinced that Venerable Tarpa exists exactly as I see her. She's got tarpiness coming from her side that makes her who she is. I'm convinced of it. That's all I've ever known since beginningless time. I have, you know, my sunglasses of true existence are still on. It's kind of like having sunglasses. The conceived object of the self-grasping ignorance does not exist, but the basis that was misapprehended does. So I have to remember that Venerable Tarpa, even though I see her as truly existent, if I were to eliminate true existence and see her clearly, there would still be a merely labeled Tarpa there. She wouldn't just simply disappear into thin air because I would eliminate the true existence. There's still a basis of designation which that true existence is imputed on falsely. So that's kind of the first unpacking of the first paragraph in this part of the Gramchen. Then we get into some of the different schools and have, they have a little bit of a conversation about this mere eye. Okay, so first we've got the, the, 
Prasangika's view. The mere I, the I that conventionally exists. Now what gets interesting is whenever you try and point your finger to what that mere I is, you can't point your finger at anything. It is something that exists by being merely labeled by name and designated by term. That's the way things actually exist. Merely designated with a term on the basis of its parts or its basis of designation. That's when we say I, that's the mere I. Merely designated on the basis. When we analyze and try and pinpoint what that exactly is, we come up with nothing. It's not one of the aggregates. My I is not form, it's not feeling, it's not compositional factors. And it's not totally separate from them either. We look everywhere. We can't find it when we're looking. Under analysis, we cannot find something. But if we get up from our cushion and we go to have breakfast, there's going to be tofu on that buffet table. Conventionally existing, you're going to be able to eat it, be nourished by it. But if you look at it and try to analyze what, where that tofu is, you're not going to be able to find it. And that's Venerable says that's hard to understand because our senses, when we look at things, they appear as if they have some mode of existence from their own side. They don't appear to be merely designated by term and concept. That's stupid. There's something real there, merely labeled. What? They appear to have some, some substantial reality. Because we think if they were merely designated by term and concept and by a mind, nothing would be there at all. So then we flip to the other extreme. But that's not true either. The mere I is there, it exists, but you can't find it when you search for it. And Venerable says, this drives us crazy. So the Chittimatrans, when you ask them, well, what do you think the mere I is? They say, well, it's this storehouse consciousness. We'll call it the mind basis of all. That's what we think the Mirai is. It's this neutral consciousness that carries with it all of these latencies, all these karmic seeds. And the latencies are what make karmic appearance happen to us. So this whole world here is just latencies projecting themselves. And karmic seeds are what gets us reborn and gives us the experiences that we have. So they believe, the Chittimatrans believe, that a person is this foundation con consciousness that stores all seeds and latencies. That's the Mira. Then you go over to the Svatantraka Madhyamakas who say, no, 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 no. If you want to know what the Mira is really, it's not this foundational consciousness. It's the mental consciousness. It's the flow of the mental consciousness. That's the person. Now, we think about that makes a little bit of sense, you know. I'm not my body. I'm not my, you know, my senses because they're so related to this gross body. But when I think about my consciousness, all my thoughts, my emotions, my creativity, my feelings, I think, therefore, I am. That's got some credibility to it. I thought the thinker could, that could be the I. That could be the mere I, one who has, you know, thoughts and emotions. That makes sense. On some level. Then the Prasangika Madhyamaka say, sorry, you got it all wrong. You're just hallucinating another make-believe self again. 
The mental consciousness is not the person because as soon as you point to it and say, that person you are saying is the mental consciousness, you have to be able to interchange those words mutually so that when you say mental consciousness and you say the person, you're meaning the same thing. So that when you say, I am walking, you should be able to say, my thoughts are walking, my mental consciousness is walking. When I'm on the phone, my mental consciousness is on the phone. And is that possible for mental consciousness to walk around, to feed the turkeys, to go to sleep? So there's some difficulty when the prosangika sort of challenges Vatantrika to say, I don't know about that mental consciousness. It doesn't make any sense. You can't, the mental consciousness can't do a mere eye, what mere eyes do. So due to this difficult position, <laughs> prosangika has come up and say, well, we believe that the mere eye is something that's merely designated on term and concept by the mind. So you've got all these different schools asserting very strongly that the eye exists in these different kinds of ways. So then to make things even a little bit more interesting, then we think about, well, when we say this is mine, what are we talking about? We, now all, we still have a disagreement about what the mere eye is. Let's see what, the, let's see what they say about what is mine. Well, this has got a whole big debate going on. When we have the thought mind, we have to be looking at something that is the object of that thought that we say is mine. My child is mine. The car is mine. That cat is mine. This book is mine. Mine is not the aggregates. Even though conventionally we say my eyes are mine, my tongue is mine, my ears are mine, okay. Here when we're talking about I and mine, which are the basis for that innate feeling of this is me, this is mine, we can't really point to our ears. We can't really point to our eyes. They're not, they're, they're mine, but they're not mine. <laughs> this, is like, this is like one of the, the big debates. Even though conventionally we say they're mine. They say the mind is the, per- this part is interesting. The mind is the person, not the aggregates. They have so many debate- debates over this person. Who is this person? Who is this mine? Who this person is? Who is this mind? So Venable wrote once to Geshe Dalil and said, I think it was a, conver- a teaching one night here where she thought that maybe maybe the mind is the owner. Maybe there's something to do with an owner in the, in the mind that's, that's, that can claim mine. And Geshe Dalil said, you can't put that in there. Mind is what makes something mine, and that's all he could, that she could get him to say. Mm-hmm. Mind is what makes something mine. So the debate is it's got to be a person because the view of the personal identity grasps that an inherently existent my and mine. So mine has got to be a person. That's what makes things mine. And they have this debate going on at Drapug and Gandhi all the time. So it's still up for grabs on what is mine. I mean, Venerable went through this recently and, you know, how to see yourself as you really are. There's still a big debate on what is mine really referring to which then leads us into the innate view of the personal identity is the self-grasping mind that grasps at the true existence of our own I and mind. And when we say persons, we mean the mere I. Okay, so whether it's me or you or President Trump, there's a mere I. But what happens is Within us, we have this view that treasures that I, 
more than anything else. We love it, we grasp onto it, we see it as truly existent. Okay, so here's that whole causal chain. Again, there's a mere I that does exist by being merely labeled. True existence is imputed, which means it exists from its own side, totally misapprehending what really exists. And then we clutch onto that as something very precious that needs to be defended and protected and comforted. And that is the view of the personal identity. So using circles, Venerable said, the self of persons, this truly existent person, is the big circle and the view of the personal identity which grasp at that I and mine is a small circle inside of it. All right, so we're going from 3P. So do you want to play that out, Venerable and Seppel, for me? What is um, self of persons? Let's see. Let's play with that. Yeah. Yeah, let's try that. Something that's both is the view of the personal identity. Okay. Something that is grasping at a self of person but not grasping at the um, personal identity is grasping at the Me. self of person in another continuum. Um, there is nothing that is the view of the grasp uh, the view of the personal, self, ident- personal identity, identity that is not grasping at self of person and something that's neither is wisdom. Yeah Venerable put that little three P in there. To be Okay, this, this gets a little tricky, but I'll, I'll read it because I want to make sure I'm clear. To be the focal object, whatever the object is that is going to give rise to the thought I, so you have a base, okay, so there's your conventional I, you have the thought I, then you have another mind that looks at that mere I and grasps at it as inherently existent. So that's, once again, there's this, this layering going on. There's the mere I, there's perce- misapprehending that mere I as truly existent, and then there's this grasping at that truly existent I. That is the view of the personal identity. So the, according to the Prasangikas, on the basis of the mere I, merely designated in dependence upon the aggregates is the focal object. Then the view of the personal identity looks at that and says, that's not a mere I, that is a truly existent one, and clings to it for dear life, protecting it, defending it, above all else. So here's where Vermeerable says, well, this becomes a big problem because we have a false idea, and it's so important. This is where you start to say, hmm, maybe this is a little bit of a clue on why I suffer so much. Why, when I don't get what I want, I get so angry, or when I, you know, when somebody does something that I don't like, you know, you start to see the pieces on how this seeing, seeing self and phenomena as truly existent might become, might be part of the problem of why we suffer. So we have a false idea of who we are, and based on that false idea of who we are, we just keep hallucinating, we just keep proliferating more and more thoughts. All sorts of afflictions arise. We we act out of those afflictions. We create karma. Just on and on and on. So this is what Venerable Seppel said. So if you look at you as truly existent, so if I look at you, if I look at Venerable Chuni as truly existent, that's not the view of the personal identity for me. But it is the grasping at persons, if I look at her and I have any attachment to her, if I grasp at her and I think that she's one of my best buds, I'm grasping, there's a self-grasping at persons because I see her not only inherently existent, but I see her as special. 
but that is not the view of the personal identity because that, that refers specifically to the, the grasping at the self as truly existent in your own continuum. So what does the self-grasping at persons do? It grasps persons as being inherently established or truly existing from their own side. If the self-grasping looks at a computer and thinks that computer is truly existent, then that becomes the self-grasping of phenomena. So once again, we, in, this, in the Prasangikas, you've got the self-grasping of persons and you also have the self-grasping of phenomena. So then we get into a little bit, we segue into a, I'm going to read this paragraph. This is in the Gomchen, and then Venerable unpacks this. Demonstrating that this is the root of turning in samsara. When we look at the mere eye and grasp at it being truly existent, which doesn't exist at all, is different than the thought that thinks that there is a self that is permanent, unitary, and independent. Because this self is much coarser kind of self. This is the Atman, this is the soul grasped by a lot of world religions, or the Atman grasped by the Hindus. So the self that is permanent, unitary, and independent is this coarser sense of self. That first of all, believing that it doesn't change at all from one life to the next. So I think for those of us who are raised in theistic religions, that's sort of the way souls were sort of thought about, is that they were unchanging, they were permanent, they went from life to life unchanging. Who you are is still who you are. The soul will always stay the same, no matter. Unitary is, doesn't have any parts. This self is partless. And it's also independent because it doesn't depend on any causes. So things around it can depend on causes. The body and mind can depend on causes, but the soul remains completely independent. So at the time of death, it rises out of one body and kerplunk goes into another body. Now, according to the folks who believe in the Atman, the Hindu religion says this soul, this Atman, this permanent, unitary, independent self carries all the karmic seeds with it because you need something to stay really stable. You need something to stay really permanent to be able to carry those powerful karmic seeds. Because if you have a person that changed from life to life, how could a changing person carry something so powerful as karmic seeds? To carry karmic seeds, you need a stable base, so it has to be permanent. It's got to be unitary. It's got to be independent of causing conditions. So this is the just. This is the reasoning on how a lot of the theistic religions view souls and how the Hindus view Atman is that you need something that just does kerplunk from life to life, unchanging, that carries all the karmic seeds. So what Venerable says is what they assert and what most people in the world believe is actually what we learn as kids from other people. So this is an acquired self-grasping. This view of the permanent, unitary, independent self is an acquired self-grasping because it's not something we grasp at innately. It's something made up by different philosophies, different religions that we learn as a kid. And because we're a kid and that's what everybody tells us and that's what everybody believes, then we believe it. And even though it's called an acquired self-grasping because you learn it in this life, the one that we're looking at is the one that grasps at the eye as inherently existent, the innate self-grasping, which comes from previous lives. It's not created by some philosophy or some ideology. It's something that travels in the mental continuum from life to life, this innate self-grasping. 
So we're not only trying to negate the permanent unitarian dependent self that, it, that they say is easy to negate, it's more about the innate grasping that comes with us in our continuum from previous lives, whether we're a grown-up, whether we're an animal, whether we're a baby, whether we're an insect, all of us have innate self-grasping. This is what is the root of samsara. Now, there is a sentence in the Gamchen that says, the view of the personal identity is the root of samsara, and grasping at the aggregate's true existence is the root of samsara as well. So, uh, Venerable response to the saying, grasping at person or self of persons as truly existent, the view of the personal identity, and the others grasping at the aggregates or phenomena as truly existent. They don't have the same object. How can they both be the root of samsara? They're totally different objects of the self-grasping. Venerable says from the text, the objects are different, but the mode of self-grasping is the same whether we're grasping at our computer or we're grasping at ourself, the mode of misapprehension is still the same. And therefore, both of them are the root. And grasping at our bodies, grasping at our feelings, are the root of samsara. But it's happening with us all the time. We don't even know it's happening. We're so used to it. And this is the part that gets to be kind of the... Well, it can be a real impetus for really thinking about emptiness and trying to counteract it, because this has been going on since beginningless time. We are so used to and convinced that things exist as they appear that we never have a challenging thought that says it might not be true. So anytime we get upset, anytime we get angry, anytime we get attached, the source of that suffering is the grasping at the truly existent eye. We've got to put those pieces together. We can't we can't keep separating that our anger and our attachment and our jealousy are coming from outside of ourselves. They're coming because of this grasping at this truly existent self and this truly existent phenomena. We want to retaliate. We want to defend ourselves. This is all around that self-grasping. And that we have to start seeing that this innate self-grasping is a huge part of our suffering. And we're grasping at it and it doesn't even exist. That's the tragedy that we suffer life after life misapprehending something that doesn't even exist. We can't even excuse it. It's totally non-existent. The mere I exist, but the truly existent one that is projected onto that mere I has no existence whatsoever. That is the, the tragedy. So an ignorance holds to its object to exist truly, and the object in question does not coincide with our way of thinking, anger arises. Because we are grasping at this object so firm, so strong and con concrete, and when it doesn't do what we want, when it doesn't please us, when it doesn't satisfy us, we need to get angry and do something about it. You can just see the causal relationship, how this ignorance propels us. When the object coincides with our way of thinking, Attachment appears. Wow, this is wonderful. This is great. This will bring me happiness. There's that happiness, exactly like I imagined it. I thought about that all week with um, Xiaohong and Jolene's lunches. Mm -hmm. I was convinced there was happiness coming from those lunches. Because as soon as I put it in my mouth, happiness arose. But the test of that is that not everyone thought the same. 
we have a few folks in this community that might not have had that same experience. <laughs> Spendral Salt, I'm shaking your head. <laughs> I, I would, happiness was pouring out of their lunches this week, but for some folks, not true. But if it, if it was, if that happiness was coming out of Xiao Hong and Jolie and the Venable Dom Show's lunches this week, everybody in this community, without exclusion, should have had the same experience of happiness. And what even more, whether it was the fried rice, the vegetarian sushi, the fried tofu, and if the logic holds, the more we eat it, the happier we should have gotten. And I tested this this week, and it wasn't true. It was all in my mind. And the more I ate, it was not true, the happier I got. I do that with a few foods. So then we go to... This is really, uh, Venerable uses a number of analogies when she's doing uh, this part. Since it is said that if you perceive the selflessness of the object, you neutralize the seed of cyclic existence. If you properly refute the object as it is perceived by self-grasping, just as cutting the root of a tree destroys its branches and leaves, you neutralize all afflictions. Therefore, if you disregard the path that opposes the mode of apprehension of the root of samsara, innate self-grasping, no other path will be able to eradicate the seed of the view of self. Without a mind engaging in the two kinds of selflessness, it is not possible to talk of realizing selflessness, as rejecting self-grasping is not like extracting a thorn. So guess what we have? The analogy of knapweed, which I read it again, and this works for me. <laughs> Venable has used this for at least 12 years, and we're going to use it again. So Napweed, our favorite friend, is a perennial with around 900 seeds per seed head, one little seed, and every year, if you don't eradicate it, it comes back bigger and buffer than ever. If you pull it out, but you don't get the root out, It'll grow even bigger the next year. Even if you break it at the stem, you won't kill it. You've only gotten the flowers. And if it hasn't rained, it's even harder to pull, so your chance of getting out the root go way down. The seed heads have the potential to grow all these new plants. So here's the analogy. Similarly, like our minds, if we don't pull out the root of samsara, this self-grasping ignorance, it will continue to grow. And don't just think because there's only one plant left in the upper meadow that we don't have to worry about it. I've been pulling for half an hour already. I want to get this over. I'm done. And there's one little sole knapweed plant sitting up there all by itself hiding in the grasses. Or you're walking on the path and you see that plant, ah, it's only one plant, not a big deal. I don't need to pull it. Forgetting that each flower on that plant contains 900 seeds, and there's a lot of flowers on just one plant. So this is similarly, if we don't pull out the root of samsara and completely destroy the self-grasping ignorance, it's like breaking the plant off above the ground. It's going to come back and be even better rooted. So if you have a little bout of anger, you have a little bout of jealousy, you got a little bout of attachment, a little bout of laziness, eh, not a big deal. Whatever we tell ourselves, it'll go away, not a big deal. Like walking past the knapweed. 
it will grow stronger and proliferate into a larger affliction in the future. So the analogy works because if you're in your practice, if we take care of even the small afflictions, even those moments where irritation arises rather than full outrage, or we start seeing ourselves clinging to something that we're attached to, if we really notice it and counteract it in the beginning, it's being able to sort of, you know, so they don't start to proliferate and get to be huge problems in the future. So we try to put as much energy into uprooting them, and as we try to uproot the nap, we also want to uproot this self-grasping ignorance. I mean, to finally cut it off at its very root. It's the only way that we're going to be able to eradicate the causes of suffering. There's no other way. And if we disregard the path that, uh, that opposes the mode of apprehension of the root of samsara, no other path will be able to eradicate the seed of the view of the self. Here's the root of self-grasping. If we don't practice the path and get some sort of understanding as little as it begins and grows on emptiness and actualize the opposite of what this ignorance apprehends, there is no other path to take. You either pull it out or you're not going to kill it. Same with ignorance. If we don't uproot it, it's going to continue to be in this continuity of mind from life to life causing all sorts of disturbances. She says, too, to understand that planting roses in the napweed, hoping that it'll kill the napweed, is not going to do it either. Virtuous karma is lovely, but it's like planting roses in a napweed patch. It looks really nice, but the napweed is still there, and it's eventually going to overtake the roses. So the virtuous karma is good for generating merit, for helping us to get some sort of, you know, it's got a lot of good things about it, but it's not going to eradicate the ignorance, no matter how great our compassion is, and how, how great our loving kindness is. So how does the realization of selflessness or emptiness actually overcome the self-grasping? How does it work? Okay, so the self-grasping is holding things to exist inherently. Things don't exist that way, which is why we're learning syllogisms. I mean, you can start seeing how this part of the Gam Chen and what we're doing on Thursday night are really starting to make sense because we're learning syllogisms to prove that things do not exist inherently even though they appear that way to our minds. We're really challenging our property of the subject. Does the reason go with the predicate? We're really trying to get more stable about what do we understand about how things exist. So the syllogisms really help us to challenge all of our misguided ways of thinking. We have to see that how things appear and how we grasp them to exist is not how they actually exist. Since when you realize emptiness is the opposite of inherent existence, the mind realizing emptiness is going to overcome the mind apprehending it. We have to understand that the wisdom realizing emptiness is the exact opposite of this misunderstanding of how things exist. But Venerable says we have to be really certain that things are empty because the appearance to us of inherent existence is so strong that we don't even recognize it as an appearance. So even if it's just a little bit of intellectual understanding, we've got some of the terms down, when we wake up and we get these afflictions getting stirred up, we say, I'm not looking at this clearly, I'm not looking at this accurately. I'm seeing something is truly just challenging, it's just starting to grow our wisdom. We have to believe that by looking at the world and looking at our situation, I'm sorry, differently, that it doesn't, doesn't have this true existence, it doesn't exist the way that it appears. We've got to have some certainty about that because the appearances of this life are so strong. 
And we've got to start somewhere challenging this beginningless misunderstanding. Looking around, doesn't everything look like it's outside of ourselves? Whether we're looking at the gong, the microphone, the phone, everything looks like what it is out there that we just came into the room and seeing some pre-existent objective object out there. Our process of perception, Venerable, this is interesting when she says this, the process of perception is faulty. So not only do we see things as truly existent, but there is a consciousness in here that we, that we, ignorance has even got a hold of that, that, that's kind of waiting around to perceive something. And there is some object out there, and it's wanting to be perceived. And then we have our eye faculty that connects the two. But the eye faculty is just hanging out there in our eyeballs, waiting for an object to come along. And then there's a previous moment of consciousness that connects there too. So it's not just the object. It's the way that we see our consciousness. It's the way that we, we see our visual consciousness. It's the way our mental consciousness. Everything just assumes that this stuff is just kind of, hanging out here without having anything from our side engaging whatsoever. It's just waiting for us to just sort of show up. Then they all get connected and we see this thing. Our eye faculty, this inherently existent eye faculty, this inherently existent mind, this inherently existent microphone, they're all just sort of connecting without a cause. And that what we see is actually what exists out there. That is so our experience. I mean, I really do think that Venerable Chuni's got some solid identity. I think that Venerable Nima's got some solid identity. They had different names before, but it doesn't matter. I know who they are. That's Barbara. That's Alicia. They're still. That's Nima Chuni. I know who they are. That's how things appear to us. And we say, yeah, that's how they really are. When Karuna's in a bad mood, we say, nasty cat, grumpy cat. Or from Mudita's crying, oh, come on, stop. They're like they're the way that we experience them. We don't think that that our perception of them has any relationship to how we perceive them. We think Karuna is grumpy from her own side. We think that you know Mudita's from Moody from her own side. The Pekka sort of you know buff and tumble kind of guy from his own side, and Maitri sort of <laughs> from their own side. That we have no that we have no say in how we perceive them. Are they really nasty cats? Are they really you know tough and tumble cats? really think that, that that's how they exist, depending on what mood we are in, we're going to have a totally different perception of who they are. I mean, it's amazing how I can look at Karuna one day and just see her as this most adorable thing, and that if I get out of bed on the wrong side, there's just nothing that she can do right. And there's nothing from her side that justifies that. It's all coming from me. One moment of our mood is going to determine how we see them in, the, in their entirety. And we do this with each other. We do this with the incarcerated. We do this with our, our president. I mean, anything. One moment of action. We, we put everybody into a box and say, that's it. That's who they are. They're unredeemable. They're hopeless. They're flawed. What to do? And we put ourselves in that same box. I mean, that's why we're so polarized in our country, because we're seeing each other as being so truly existent, fill in the blank. Always will be. No change. No, no growing. No change of you. Where inherently everybody's like this. And you just fill in the blank. So, you know, Venerable says at this point in the talk, she says, does this give you some idea why ignorance is such a problem? 
I mean, that's where you go. This, you know, after looking at this this week, I say, oh my gosh. Like the little dots are starting to show up. They're not connecting, but they're starting to float around. I'm going, wow, this might be why I suffer. This might be why we all suffer. Just this misapprehension, this inherent existence that pervades everything. Because she says, otherwise, if we don't see the connection between the self-grasping ignorance and our dukkha, when we do the emptiness meditation and we can't find the person, not one or separate from the aggregates, we say, so what? No big deal. doesn't change anything. We haven't really understood what ignorance is, how it appears to us, how we grasp at it, and how it causes us so much suffering. We just don't see that. She just continues to just talk about how attachment, falling in love, everyone has had that experience. I mean, you're falling in love. I mean, if that doesn't describe true existence, if that doesn't tr- describe grasping at persons, it's just falling in love. You're just out of control. Your mind, your, your feelings, your body are just out of your hands. <laughs> and the person we're falling in love with, they're just faultless. You know, there's nothing wrong. They're the key to my happiness. They're perfect just the way they are. This relationship's going to be different. We're not going to be like other couples. This is just really... And then as soon as they, you know, show up late without any excuse, or maybe they're drinking a few too many microbrews on the weekend, suddenly everything changes. We completely remake them now. We're totally averse to them. There's nothing there that is redeeming whatsoever. And we we do this all day long. So we're either 100% wonderful or we're 100% worthless. This all comes at grasping at inherent existence and getting those solid and flexible views of people. I mean, this gets really tiring. I mean, you can just imagine. We really grasp and we, we relate to each other with this highs and lows, intense feelings of attachments, intense feelings of jealousy and confusion and fear. Gosh, just tuckering ourselves out. So here's the causal sequence. Venable really lines this up beautifully. First, the grasping at true existence that is reifying the object. All right, so that's the first thing that ignorance does. It gives rise to the distorted attention that exaggerates either the good qualities or bad qualities or projects good and bad qualities that aren't there. That's sequence two. That's the job of the distorted attention, to exaggerate. Number three sequence, that then gives rise to afflictions, whether it's anger, attachment, jealousy, confusion. Sequence four, that affliction motivates the karma, which then leads to the dukkha. That's the entire, our entire existence laid out right there due to self-grasping ignorance. Grasping at truly existent I, reifying the object, using distorted attention to exaggerate either the good or bad about it. We respond by anger, attachment, the 84,000 afflictions, motivated the karma, and then the result. There you go. So if you cut the first one, grasping at true existence, the distorted attention crumbles. If you uproot the napwe, the plant dies. The afflictions stop. So do the actions. So does the dukkha. Just a few more things. Once again, another analogy. This is the one that's probably the most used, and it really does work. When we're talking about emptiness, using the analogy of a face in the mirror. Okay? 
there appears to be a person in the mirror, very vivid, very clear. I mean, babies think there's people in the mirror. Kittens think there are people in the mirrors. The analogy is used in a sense that there is an appearance, but the appearance is false. So in the same way, things appear to our senses as, a, as existing inherently, but that, that appearance is also false. So we're just getting yet another way to look at how things exist to us, you know, inherently. Just like that face in the mirror, we, at first we think there's a person in there, but then we realize that that's false. It's just the reflection of a face. The appearance of the face in the mirror arose due to many factors. You've got a mirror, you've got the face, you've got the lighting, you've got the position of the person in relationship to the mirror. And then you have the appearance. So the appearance of the person in the same way is also due to many factors. But the appearance of the person as inherently existent is mistaken because actually it is a dependent arising. So the appearance of the face in the mirror is mistaken as is our appearance of a person as inherently existent is also mistaken. So last but not least here, we have a, one of the this is a question that comes up a lot in our, our um, class of when Venable's teaching on emptiness. So when we're meditating on emptiness, the selflessness of person, the selflessness of phenomena, it is said to realize the selflessness of person is easier than to realize the selflessness of phenomena. So Venerable unpacks this a little bit and says, why, what is the thinking about this? And then she gives a little bit of her own thoughts about it. So she says to check this out to see if this really works for us, because I think a few of us have different feelings about whether the selfless to realize the selflessness of person is easier than selflessness of phenomena. So they say, we know that we can't really identify the person without identifying their body, their speech, maybe their handwriting, how they walk. We never really see a person without seeing some identifying characteristics like that, their body, hear their speech. Because that is the case, it's easier to see that the person is dependent on other things. And so it is easier to see them as empty. That's the reasoning on why the schools say, I, I know that's just the prosingikas, but generally. Whereas when we look at a cup, totally out there on its own, having inherent cupness coming from its core. So they say it's harder to see the emptiness of the cup because it is so out there, totally differentiated from us, totally separate from our minds. That's how it appears. That's why they say the selflessness of persons is easier to realize than the selflessness of this cup. So his uh, venerable um, asked his holiness once, well, she shared with him, she said that explaining, she tried to explain to him that a Western mind, with all of our science background, see phenomena as having parts and causing, because it's just kind of a, of our schooling, that when we look at things and we study in our science classes, that we put all sorts of objects under telescopes and under, I mean, under microscopes, and that we see that they have parts, that they're, you know, they're, they're, they arise due to cause and condition. We take things apart, whether it's a little frog or something. They're composed of atoms and molecules moving around all the time. You know, so we can see that, that things like cups and frogs, that they, they're like impermanent. They're made of all sorts of things, all sorts of parts and causes and conditions. Whereas in our culture, we are raised to be very solid, independent, individualistic. 
from our own side. So she was really challenging this uh, assertion that it's easier to realize the selflessness of person. She said, I don't know. I, I kind of think the selflessness of phenomena is easier just because of, of this paradigm that we have as Westerners. And His Holiness just laughed. So I don't know, you know, whether that's something that they also, you know, spend a lot of time in the debate court on what is easier to, re- to realize, the selflessness of person, selflessness of phenomena. Anybody have any views about that one way or the other? Listen. This is the last of, our, of the notes here, folks. If you think of the self of person being imputed upon the aggregates, and it, it can be easier, I think, to see that there is no self there, but still think the aggregates exist, exist. and they are the, the self of phenomena we're talking about, I think. Mm-hmm. So partially, you get the selflessness of person, but the aggregates are... I think that's where the lower schools have gone. I've said there's no self of person in the phenomena, in the, in the aggregates, but the aggregates... aggregates still truly exist. So that's one of the ways that they I think that's what the chariot um, story is getting at. Mm -hmm. I partially agree with what you're saying, that really it's talking about how the self of person is easier to realize. And um, if you think about the definition of the self, the self is, or the person is a being which is imputed independence upon four or five aggregates. So right there you're already saying the self is dependent on the aggregates. Right. And so that's easier for a person to understand than the aggregates are imputed independence upon their basis of mm-hmm. designation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So you, do, so you do agree that selflessness of a person, from your side, you really think that that would be much easier to realize than the selflessness of a phenomena? Because yeah, of that, it's easy for me imputation. to think about this is a constantly changing body and mind. That's something that I can investigate. Whereas the cup? Well, we're not talking about cups. We're talking about, I, I agree with him that we're really talking about, about the, the aggregates. aggregates. And how do you think about the mind, especially? I mean, the body, you can think about in terms of its parts or its basis of designation. But when you so- start thinking about yeah. the mind, it's so nebulous or it's so yeah. ephemeral that I think that's where it gets difficult. Give, yeah. And then you think, no, I really am my mind. Yeah. Because it's harder to dissect. Yeah, you can see this for Tantra because how it makes sense on some level. Because they do believe that that the me- that that's, that the person is the mental consciousness. Um, that's what carries the karmic seeds from life to right. life. Yes, right. The mental. Community. Yeah. First of all, Jolene is watching in Spokane. <laughs> Hi, Jolene. <laughs> so she says, "Thank you, Venerable, for taking taking such good care of us at the Abbey. My physical self is at the airport, but I feel like I'm at Ananda Hall listening to Venerable Semke. <laughs> so my feeling is phenomenon I." Is my understanding of phenomenon I correct? Phenomena. Phenomenon I. Yeah. I think um, she's... Uh, well, I'm not... Well, I think her, her mental... Her conceptual mind has got herself here. But the merely labeled Jolene is at the airport. So she can't really be two places at one time, but we understand what she means. <laughs> Is it possible to perceive the mere I without thinking that it's inherently existent? Like if you, after you gain some kind of realization? To see the conventional self directly. Yeah. 
I think only, well, I think that when, um, this is just my, I'm going to take out the shot at it, is that they always, that the conventional eye always appears like an illusion. I'm not quite sure about a direct, re- I mean, a Buddha can realize conventional ultimate truth simultaneously. Can a, can a Arya or anybody directly realize a mere eye? I'm not sure. Is that a is that a question? It, it seems like is there a putative phenomena? They come they they come out of um, meditative equipoise, right? And yeah. it appears truly existent, but they know it's not. Not right. So then they are not conceiving of it. Is that the right? As term? truly existent, not conceiving of it as truly existent anymore. Yep. I wonder if you're if you're talking about perceiving the mirror eye as a conventional. Entity, because I can perceive your mirror eye right now with my eye consciousness. It's a direct perception. That's a realization. But if you're talking about, yeah, I'm looking at you right now. Not right this minute, no. I'm thinking of you as a constantly changing body and mind, merely imputed. I mean, it's not a realization, but it's a, th- that part's not a realization. But I, the mirror eye, you said looking at the mirror eye or realizing the mirror eye. Mirai is just another name for the conventional person. And we can realize that mere, you know, the conventional person with our eye consciousness. She said we automatically grasp it. It's, well, that's what's, that's what's been in the teaching. Venable does say pretty much that the sense consciousness and the mental consciousness is pretty close. Yeah. Because she says that that's how the self grasping that they, we do grasp both the sense, con- the, the, con- the self conscious, the self. The sense consciousness and the mental consciousness, both. What? See things as inherently yes, existent. Yes, they appear to the sense and the mental consciousness as inherently existent. Right. But we've just been talking about... But you're not... Gra- there's a difference between grasping up and seeing it as truly existent. Right, that's the difference between the appearing object... Right. Things appear inherently existent... Right. And the apprehended, apprehended object, object... Or engaged object, how are we holding them? Right. How are we thinking them to exist? And we've just been talking about the lack of inherent right. existence. So, and you know, our neutral minds don't have... Yeah aren't grasping it in here in existence. But they do see it as truly existent. No, huh? It's just a mental consciousness. Mm-hmm. Can you say that the sense consciousness is, or the visual consciousness is apprehending the mere eye, or do you say that the visual consciousness is apprehending the basis of de- designation of the mere eye, because all you can see is a body? It sounds really strange. People will think we're a little funny up here on the hill if we go around saying we can't see a person. So conventionally we say... So I'm still t- well, trying to find out the point. Yeah. Minds, right? Eye consciousness is our conventional minds. So I think it's, I remember Geshe Tashi sharing, making this point that, um, you know, they haul us off in little white jackets if we... Said there was no person there. But what appears to the eye consciousness, what the eye consciousness is engaging is the actually the form of... The, the basis of the, designation. The body, the form of the body. The shape and color, actually. Uh, yeah, shape body. Does that answer your question, Christina? Shape. I... I think what Venable Losong said made sense that, you know, you see things, but they're illusion-like because mm-hmm. you know they're not inherently existence, yet they still appear. Because you would split the steps involved of the personal identity. Mm-hmm. One is the thought of the mere eye. Then two is misapprehending it as truly existent. Mm-hmm. And then grasping. So one, can those two be split? And then grasping. And then grasping, yeah. Well, once you realize the selflessness of person... You don't see the in meditative equipoise, the emptiness. And when you come out of that, this is where the understanding of you coming out of meditative equipoise, even though it appears as truly existent, you understand that it's illusion-like. 
that it doesn't exist as it appears. But as far as splitting, I'm not sure what you mean by splitting it. You have the thought of the mere eye, and then you misapprehend it as truly existent. So it sounded like it was a two-step two step. A pretty there. quick two-step process, probably. Or is it always kind of together? Well, I think for most of us, once again, since we've been doing this since beginning of time, we don't even recognize that that's how we're perceiving just, well, pretty much everything. But underneath that misperception is a conventionally existent object that does exist by mere designation, by cause and conditions and parts. Yeah. But you still see them. The comment is, is we're not always seeing, th- we're, always, we're not always grasping things as inherently existent. That's what Sankapa says. We have minds that aren't grasping. And so you were talking about the thing between things appearing inherently existent, and then we assent to the appearance and grasp at it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the two steps. So we talked a lot about that with Geshe Tekcho about 10 years ago. And he said, I gave him an example of sitting at a concert, because I was trying to figure out where is that in my experience? Like, when am I just like, there's just the object there, and then when do I like, <laughs> and so I was telling, I said, gave him the example of, I've gone to a lot of classical music concerts, and there's a point where I'm just sitting there enjoying the music, and then the point would come where like, oh, I want to buy the CD, I want, I want, you know, it's like the mind, something would shift. And he said, yeah, that could be it. But I think that um, you'd have to have a more subtle mind than what I have to really know that. But mm-hmm. he said that's something that could be discerned. Mm-hmm. He answered that question affirmatively. Right. And right. that was the example I gave. In this, <laughs> explained quite beautifully. Well, that was the first two teachings the last week of February and the first week of March, so there's plenty there still. But thank you for your patience and understanding. Let's do some dedicating from whatever uh, clarity, whatever understanding that we may have developed tonight. Once again, it really does tear to tatters the cyclic existence, so let's take that for truly for, you know, creating the causes to being able to understand emptiness directly as the the ultimate antidote and medicine to the self-grasping ignorance that keeps us suffering life after life. <laughs>